Okay, so let us pray, and then we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, I'm going to pray first. And then we will read. Let's pray. Father, thank you so very much for giving us an opportunity to be in your house today. And thank you for all those that are able to be here this morning. We pray, God, for your grace and mercy to attend to all the needs represented in our congregation, not represented this morning. So many challenges before us as individuals, Lord. One of those, Father, I feel deeply and firmly about is our the depth of knowledge of Scripture. And I pray you help me this morning with this topic. Help me to, uh, I'll bring out everything you've allowed me to prepare for and just let it be and come out in a way, Lord, that's going to be beneficial to the hearer. I pray that this morning in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, before we read the Scriptures, I just want to give you a couple thoughts. I told you, uh, I mentioned a little bit we were going to talk about this. This is a subject that can cause some people discomfort. Not everybody. And, and hopefully, once you've learned some more about it, you won't have any discomfort with it. My goal is to, and I'm going to put this up here, uh, to familiarize ourselves with this biblical belief in such a way we are no longer troubled when the word or the concept is addressed. By that I mean there are people, and I've heard pastors say this, so I'm not going to talk about that. We don't want to talk about predestination. Well, it's in the Bible. I mean, you've got to talk about it. And so I want to do that, but I want to come across a hope in a way that you will just go away from after this series, and it's going to be six or seven weeks we're going to talk about this because it is an involved subject, but I want you to be able to make sure you understand it and have a complete concept of it. So we read from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 through 11, if you have your Bible. And a reminder that we are reading our opening scriptures now from the Bible, not from the screen, and so it would be good. I assume most of you have Bibles. It would be good for you to bring them along with you. But listen to the writing. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Now, 
as I said, you can see there twice in that passage of Scripture, one of the most important passages, the word predestined appears twice. It's actually referred to in verse 4 as well. And we will come back to that directly. I want us to become familiar with the concept and the associated terms. And uh, we're going to take several weeks to highlight this throughout the Bible. And I want you to be able to see this. This can be, can be an involved, difficult subject. And it is often avoided from the pulpit to the general body of the church. I have, in fact, uh, books by noted theologians, past and present, who say this is really something you shouldn't talk about on Sunday morning to the general body of the church because it is so prone to misunderstanding. And this is why I would say to you we're going to take several weeks, not just today's message. It is difficult, and you might ask, well, pastor, if it's so difficult, why is it necessary for us to talk about this? I would give you a couple things. The first is, and I think this is true about a lot of biblical doctrines, but if you're not familiar with many times people reject something when they really don't know what it is they're rejecting. They, they have an idea. They heard something that's been passed down or, or expressed, but they, they never really have looked at the subject in depth to really see what it's saying. And we can relate to a hundred things like that. Where, where we, have the, we, we just don't have enough information. The second thing I want you to see, and the reason why it's, it, uh, it is necessary, even though it's difficult, is because it is connected to a host of other doctrines. Some weeks ago, I made this statement that God has, and that this is tricky, so please stay with me for the whole series. God has predetermined everything that will happen. And that's in the book of, of the Bible. Look at the book of Genesis with me, just in your mind. You don't have to turn there. But remember this story. God comes down to Abraham, and what does he say to Abraham? He says, your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land for 400 years, and afterwards I will come down and deliver them with a mighty hand. So the whole Exodus story has been predetermined by God. This is the way it's going to happen. And yes, we will get into the works later on and the study about free will and our free will and how it works in these concepts. We'll talk about that. But it's connected to all these other doctrines. And so when people say, well, I don't want to talk about that, you're really cutting yourself off. I was talking to Scott in our mentoring uh, on Tuesday morning. We got into the discussion about the jingo game. You know the jingo? You pull the wood out. And after a while, you pull out so much it falls, it collapses. And we must be mindful that this is what happens with the Scripture. I want to always use this analogy of a diamond, and I apologize because I wanted to, to get that on the screen. But a diamond has different facets. What makes it beautiful, what makes it valuable is the different facets. And the Word of God is like that. It is a diamond, a multifaceted diamond. And when you take one of the facets away, you have marred the diamond, and it's no longer worth what it was before. I also want to do a little bit of research on diamond cutting and forgot. But when they cut the diamond, if they don't hit it just so, the diamond is ruined. And what was once worth millions perhaps is now just nothing. And this is what happens with the Word of God. This topic, as I hope to show you in the weeks ahead, is connected to so many other topics. You cannot avoid it because it's part of the tapestry. Thirdly, I would say to you, that, and this is very important, it is a, and I've got caution on your outline and on mine. It's important 
that a full and comprehensive view of grace can be hindered if we reject this teaching. Now, I say that because there are lots of good Christians in the world, other denominations, other fellowships that would not believe predestination as I hope to present it to you. I'm not saying they're lost. Nor am I saying that they diminish grace. I'm saying it is possible for grace to be diminished. The June the 10th, a couple weeks from now, they're having what they call a ring of fire eclipse where the moon will be in front of the sun in such a way that all you see is the ring of the sun behind the moon. A ring of fire eclipse is called. And they're talking about that. But when that happens, you still see the sun, but you're not getting the full impact of the sun. You're you're only seeing a blemish, an outline of the sun. And this is what can happen. It can happen. If I avoid predestination or a thorough biblical, thorough biblical definition of it, grace could be eclipsed. I'm not saying it would be. I'm saying it could be. Here's something I don't have on my outline for all of our young people and, us, uh, and others. Because here's what happens sometimes when people get hooked up with unbelievers. They say, well, they'll come to Christ later. You don't know that. Now, I'm not saying that you couldn't be married to an unbeliever and have a good relationship. I've known situations like that. But there are special challenges there. Are you going to have your children in church or not? Are they going to be seeing a model of Christianity in the home or only in the church? Those are things you have to consider. And if I choose someone who's already serving Christ... You're right, it could be a pretense. They might not be true believers. They might just be religious. Absolutely true. But my point to you is, and we'll hope to unpack it later, if God has not chosen them from eternity past for salvation, they're never going to get saved, no matter how much you want them to. Well, that's hard, Pastor. You're right, it is. But I wanted to throw it in this morning. The next thing I want you to see is that you and I are supposed to grow to maturity. We're supposed to grow to maturity. And what does that mean? Look at these passages of Scripture, if you would, this morning. I fed you with milk and not solid food, for you're not ready for it. And even now you are not ready. 1 Peter 2.2, 2, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that you may grow up into salvation. Notice, I think you can make this connection yourself. You're not supposed to stay on the bottle. That's where all of us start. But that is not where we're supposed to stay. We are to mature and to grow. And as we grow, we begin to take in the food that adults will take in. Look at this passage from Hebrews. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. 
You want to know why the Christian church has so much vacillation with all the doctrinal craziness today? It's because they're not trained in the Word. We know Bible stories. Someone was asking me, I can't remember, I think it was Jonathan, when in our Thursday mentoring about the ark of Noah, they found Noah's ark. Who cares? People watch hours of documentaries about they found this, so they found that, and won't open the Bible. We are to be trained. Listen to this. John Chrysostom in the year 407, who died in 407, said that the writer of Hebrews here is not speaking concerning life conduct when he says to distinguish good from evil, for this is possible and easy for every person to know right from wrong in day-to-day living. But he is speaking concerning doctrines that are wholesome and those that are corrupted. This is the meaning of to distinguish good from evil. If we have the faculties of the soul trained to distinguish good and evil, we are able to discern false teachers. But how do our faculties become trained? By continual hearing and by experience of the Scriptures. In this passage, in this book of Ephesians, Paul later says, uh, we don't, you shouldn't be carried away by every wind of doctrine like children. You must be rooted and grounded in Christ. So you and I are supposed to grow. I know this. You said this subject is difficult. Yes, it is difficult, especially difficult for infants in the faith. But you're supposed to grow in the faith until you're capable of comprehending and affirming some of the more difficult aspects of Scripture. Here's your life lesson for today. We are to grow in our knowledge of the Word until we are able to digest the substance of the Word. Now, this might have been better back at the beginning of my message when I was talking to you about the difficulty of it. But you and I are supposed to grow. That is, as we grow in Scripture, as we increase in our knowledge of God, as we get a grasp in our spirit, then some of the things that are difficult become less difficult. I'm not saying that it becomes easy to comprehend but it does become more easy is not the right word here, but it's the only one I've got. It does become easier to affirm what the Bible says without always trying to comp- a compromise it or weaken it or water it down. Are you one of those people? Are you one of those people who is constantly looking for a way out of what the Scripture says? I don't think you're a bad Christian. I think you're an immature Christian, still at the child's level, and you need, to be, you need to grow some. And how do you do that? By wrestling with difficult issues. You do not become a, a world-class athlete by sitting on the couch saying, I wish I was a world-class athlete. You get up off the couch, and you go on a diet, and you exercise, and you run, and you do all these things. And the same thing is true scripturally. We really do not have the, uh, the, the luxury of saying, I'm not going to accept this or I'm not going to accept that. You might not want to accept my interpretation, which is biblical through and through, but you cannot avoid the issue and just say, well, that's such a hard issue. I'm not going to talk about that. How many people in our culture do that with homosexuality? But you know, that's, such, that's so involved and so complex. And I have so many homosexual friends. I, you and I really don't have that luxury if we're going to call ourselves followers of Christ. 
Because we're supposed to be declaring the glory of the everlasting gospel. Now the substance of the word. We are to grow in the knowledge of the word until we're able to digest the substance of it. What is the substance as it pertains to our subject today? And this is it, and I do not have a slide, but I think it might be on your outline. Stay with me. God predetermined who would, and by the process of elimination, who would not be saved. Now, what do you mean by the process of elimination? We all know, or at least all of us say we know, that everybody doesn't get saved in the end. I'm afraid many of us are practicing universalists. We say there's a heaven and a hell, and some people go to hell, but we don't really believe that in day-to-day practice. We think everybody we meet is going to go to heaven. Now, it's important for me to say this. I have to say it many times through, and you have to hear it. None of us know, only God knows who he has or hasn't called to salvation. You can't look at a person and say they're picked for hell and they're picked for heaven. You don't know that. That's why we live our lives and witness to everybody. We care and love for all human beings because we don't know who God has called and who he hasn't. I can't make that distinction, neither can you. Can I remind you, though, that there are people you will look at in the course of your life and say, boy, they're, da- they're damned, they're, they're living, they're just on their way. And when you get to heaven, you'll find out there they are because God had a plan to bring them in. And you will find other people who sit in church every Sunday and look smug and righteous, and they've never given the heart to Christ, and they will be separated forever from Him. You and I cannot look at people And make a decision about that. But we must affirm what the Scripture says. Again, that's a hard question. That's a hard thing. Do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 6? He said, unless you eat my flesh and you drink my blood, prefiguring our joining with Him, quote-unquote, through the communion observation... He says to the people, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll perish. And a bunch of them nudged each other and said, man, that's hard saying. What kind of nut is this guy? How are we supposed to eat his flesh and drink his blood? We're not a bunch of cannibals. And the the scripture says they walked away. The whole crowd. And Jesus looked around and there was only 12 left. And he said, are you going to go as well? And they said, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Let me read this from you. I, I made a decision. I've, I've put away about 2,000 words of theological reading in the past six months. I thought I would do some cultural reading. And uh, this is from, do I have the right page? No, that's because you've got your bookmark where your tab is. This is the book, 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project. Some of you may have heard of the 1619 Project. It's an initiative of the, uh, of the New York Times that President O'Biden, O'Biden, <laughs> well, he's halfway of Obama presidency, you know, so he's got half of Obama's people, so we'll call it the O'Biden presidency. He's for that. 
And for those who don't know, the 1619 Project says in 1619, 20 slaves were unloaded at Jamestown, Virginia, and that's when America started. Now, in response to this, uh, let me just read this, okay? Moreover, when the editors responsible for the 1619 Project have been confronted with the errors and contradictions of the time's portrayal of history, they have retreated. Now listen, they have retreated into a postmodern claim that it is all a matter of interpretation. This is exactly what Jake Silversmith, Silverstein, the Times Magazine editor-in-chief, wrote in response to five major historians whose letter to the magazine was published on December 29, 2019. The letter expressed the historian's strong reservations about important aspects of the 1619 Project. The letter was by Victoria Bynum, James McPherson, James Oakes, Sean Willens, and Gordon Wood, five of America's most prominent academic historians. But Silverstein's response is jaw-dropping. Refusing to correct any of the inaccuracies, he explains. Historical understanding is not fixed. It is constantly being adjusted by new scholarship and new voices. Within the world of academic history, differing views exist, if not over what precisely happened, then about why it happened, who made it happen, and how to interpret the motivations of historical actors and what it all means. In other words, it doesn't matter what history says. My preference is what matters. Now I'm asking you, when we come to Scripture, are you willing to let the Scripture speak? Or are you always going to be saying, well, I just don't see it like that. And this is a part of our culture, isn't it? Transgenderism, a complete rejection of science. That a boy can just say, I'm a girl, and presto, I'm a girl. And you can't question that. Because individual expression is the ultimate God in our culture. And what about evolution? Do you know that more and more and more and more and more and more scientists are saying, this doesn't work. It just can't be true. And yet people are plugged into that. I want to choose my own view of truth. You can't. Pick your own view of truth. When it comes to Scripture, we have to wrestle with the difficult things. Again, I'm not trying to say you have to necessarily agree with the, the interpretation that I'm presenting this morning about predestination, and we'll get into that some more in the future. But I am saying you must be on guard that you're not just making a decision based upon your own preference. God predetermined who would, and by the process of elimination, who would not be saved. Now, most people, even biblical people, would make this response, well, that doesn't sound fair. It's not reasonable. It's not right. I can't believe that's what the Bible means. So let me talk about why that objection comes up. The first one is, the misunderstanding of exclusion. 
I have a point here, and I don't know whether to make it here or later, but I'll bring it out here. I've shared this with you before when we've talked about election. Because we have the wrong idea, the, the misunderstanding of exclusion. People say, well, Christianity is so exclusive. It's just not right for God to exclude people. And you're coming at it from the wrong angle. We are all excluded. We're all on the outside. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He has placed all under sin, Jew and Gentile. It's not like the game show where the most elaborate costume and the most animated person gets picked. Pick me, pick me, pick me. And the person next to you gets picked even though they were jumping higher and had a more flamboyant outfit. No, no, no. It is a mob burning buildings and telling God to take a hike. And from that mob, God chooses this one and that one and this. None of them deserve picking. And that's what makes it grace, my friends. If he looked upon that mob of rebels and picked anyone for, their, for anything about them, then it isn't grace. It's something else. And this is the idea people have. It's, it's wrong. I, I was working as hard as that person was. That's not why he picks. He picks for the purpose of his glory and his grace. And so we must understand that. person that says, and you have, many of you have heard this or said it. Well, it's not fair for God to pick me and not somebody else. You're not supposed to be fretting about the fairness of it, but exalting in the grace that God bestowed upon you in choosing you. Secondly, we need to talk about the sinner's predicament. Because we're not always connected to this, and I must move along. Where am I at? How do you get this thing to change? Here's what the Bible says about sinners. We're dead. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in trespasses and sins. We are blind. John 9.25, one thing I know, that I, though I was blind, now I see. Lost, 15.24 of Luke, for this my son was lost and is found. Obviously, those last two things are known to us from the incredible hymn written by a former slave ship owner, John Newton, who wrote the song about amazing grace. I once was blind, but now I see. Was lost, but now I'm found. These are the concepts of Scripture. Dead people cannot do anything for themselves. How does a dead person bring themselves to faith in God? Have you ever seen a dead person get out of the casket and do anything? Oh, in Hollywood, in, in stories. But this is the analogy. These are the images that Scripture uses. May I also tell you about blind because all of us know blind people can function in society. Uh, Stevie Wonder, uh, Ray Charles, was Ronnie Millsap blind? Ronnie Millsap and hundreds of others. Helen Keller was blind and deaf from birth. Now, the point isn't that you can't function in life. 
The point isn't that you, you're blind, but you can't do anything. No, that's not the point, because blind people do things all the time. In fact, even in Scripture, blind beggars. Bartimaeus, who found his way to a street corner every day and begged for alms. You can function as a blind person, but here's what you cannot do. You cannot diagnose the cause of your blindness or perform the surgery necessary to fix it. Is it congenital blindness or is it a, an eye disease? Is it something that could be fixed or corrected with vision enhancing instruments like glasses? Or is it a permanent situation? You see, the blind person cannot make that decision. That's what the scripture means when it talks about us being blind. Not that we can't function, but that we cannot fix our blindness. Now let's talk about being lost. Lost does not mean you're bewildered, you missed the exit, or you were following the GPS. Neil came in the other week and said he had to go over to Middleburg to see his son, and Middleburg to see his son, and he was going by the GPS, and it took him down all these back road cow paths, you know, to get him there. No, that's not the kind of lost we're talking about. We're talking about being lost in a wilderness and the only way anybody, you're going to ever get out if there's a, a, a rescue party launched and comes to find you. You are lost. Not just a little bewildered, not off the track, not, not confused. You're lost. And you're so lost, you don't even know you're lost. You're out there in the wilderness tramping about and saying, oh, it'll be okay after a while, with no idea that you're dying. Because of that predicament, the Scripture says this, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, moral good, God-satisfying good. Not even one. I read a book, one of the books I read a couple years ago on predestination. The man pointed out that if God doesn't predestine people to salvation, nobody's going to be saved. Because we're all wretched rebels in rebellion against God every day of our lives, even as Christians. We tinker and toy with things that we know God opposes, and we rationalize it. And so we must not look at predestination as something horrible. It is, it, is an, it is an invitation to come in and be rescued from your predicament. Now then, how can a sinner, how can a person like that be accepted in God's sight? It's through a process that begins with God's choice in the eternal past. You did not get up one Sunday and said, I'm going to church today. I talk to so many people, don't you? And you invite them to church, or you talk to them about church, and they say things, oh, I'm looking for a church, I want to go to church. And six months from now, you see them, and they'll say the same thing. I, don't get a, I, don't, I used to get really anxious about it. I don't get anxious anymore when it's time God will bring them. If that person's called from eternity past to salvation, they will come in God's time. Keep loving them, keep praying for them, keep witnessing to them. But don't lose heart or be despair. God's plans never fail. 
God begins a process, and this is where you get into some of the other teachings. Is that here? Is that here? It's later. How can a sinner be accepted in God's sight through a process that begins with God's choice? As further proof, let's begin with the word predestination. I've already hinted at this many times, but the word means to predetermine, to determine beforehand. The English word only appears five times in the English Standard Version and the King James Version. But if we make a comparison with other words that are biblically important but aren't found in the Bible, we can see how inconsistent we are about the word predestination. People, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Never. Not once. But we believe in the Trinity because the Scriptures teach Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The word rapture is not in the Bible. Well, all of us here today, and almost everyone you know who has any kind of religious affiliation at all, knows the word rapture. They know what it is, they know what it means, although there's differences of interpretation about exactly when it happens, but they all know about the rapture, but the word's not in the Bible. So I must ask you to question, why are we hesitant to talk about predestination, which is in the Bible, and have no reluctance to talk about words like the rapture, which aren't? Again, I'm not saying it's not taught in Scripture. I'm saying the word itself, and people say, I don't like that word. I just don't want to talk about that at all. I understand your discomfort, but you and I are called to grow past that discomfort. So what do we do? Well, why is this important for us to talk about predestination? The first reason should be clear. The Bible is saturated with the concept and the principle. I hope to show you this in weeks ahead. There are too many scriptures to deal with today, but I want you to see as I gave you that illustration of, 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 of Abraham earlier. We wouldn't, the word predestination is not in the Old Testament. We wouldn't connect it to that, but that's what we're talking about. God says, here is what's going to happen. And we'll get into, be patient. We'll get into the discussion about how can I have free will and, and yet everything God says comes to pass. We'll talk about free will and fatalism in the future because there's a difference between whatever God wants to happen will happen regardless and God does everything He does through the free will choices of His creatures. And we will talk about that. This would be a good time to bring out the message from the sign from years ago that said, if you come to visit, bring your scuba gear, because we're going deep. <laughs> we're going deep. The Bible is saturated with the concept. I told you there were five appearances of the word in the Bible, all of the word predestination in the Bible, in the New Testament. Two were in our Ephesians text. One is in Acts chapter number 4. For truly in this city there were gathered against your servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined. The King James Version says, had determined beforehand to take place. In other words... The death of Christ was a predestined event. But not an accident, not the victory of Satan or the Roman government. It was the fulfilling of God's eternal plan to save 
men and women. Let's read the other two passages. This is edited, by the way, for space. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Here's where I want to touch on a little bit of how these scriptures overlap each other, and you can't get away with one without infecting the other. We know, and I will, I will read it, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Those called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Let me stop there for just a moment. People say, well, I'm predestined. It doesn't matter where I live. Yes, it does, because He predestined you to live a holy life. You just can't say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm not going to worry about this, because I'm predestined, man. I'm, I'm in, I got my ticket. No. Because the predestination includes how you will live as a Christian. Not just the method by which you become a Christian. To be conformed to the image of the Son, and those whom He predestined, He called, and those whom He called, He justified, and those whom He justified, He glorified. Now, could I call your attention to, Rev, to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 again? As He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. He didn't choose to keep you out of hell. That's a byproduct. He chose to turn you into a reflection of Jesus Christ in your day-to-day -day life. And you can see, we all like that Scripture. In fact, many people quote this Scripture without realizing that it applies to Christians and not people in general. Everything's going to be okay. The Scripture says, for those who love God, God works to accomplish His eternal purposes, your eternal good. Not necessarily you get the job next week, or you get the right medical report, or, or, or other good things, but that eternal good, that you will be with God in the end, forever. And why is that true? Because God has predestined your destiny, and He works infallibly to bring that destiny to pass. We talk about eternal security, the perseverance of the saints. Some people use the phrase that's wrong, once saved, always saved. I just remind you what I've said before and I will say again. If I have to be perfect, and I'm not talking about a ra raging mad sinner, I've shared with you before, my two constant in a, a companions, lust and contempt. And in a world like ours, where outrage is on every corner, I tell you again that if it's up to me to be perfect, absolutely 100% perfect, every moment of every day, I will not make it. And there's no hope in that. But if I'm trusting in God's unfailing purposes to call me to Himself and to save me and to keep me throughout my life and to present me before Him spotless without fault, I have reason to rejoice and celebrate and give thanks. Amen? This is the greatness of our God this morning. Now listen to it. The difficult part, let's see, I have a slide. 
The word Greek, the Greek word I've already told you means to determine beforehand. Now, when was the beforehand? Well, let's look at the scriptures. And we're almost done. Ephesians 1.4, we refer to it repeatedly. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. 2 Timothy 1.9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. I'm going to tell you, children, listen to me, please. If we can get this concept... It eliminates all pride from our hearts. You can't possibly brag about what a good Christian you are and what a great thing God did because it is great, but it's great because you don't deserve any of it. Before you were born, before your grandparents were born, before your great, 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 great grandparents, Adam and Eve, were born, God chose to save. And again, you say, well, that's so scary. That's, I don't know about this person. You don't know about that person. And I will tell you that in many cases, you won't know about that person until you get to heaven. You share Christ, you love them, you pray for them, but you will not know until you get to heaven. And when you get to heaven, your heart will be transformed in such a way that you will not grieve as you would now. It is difficult. Yes, I understand that, but we can't. Ignore the Scriptures. When was this beforehand? Before the ages began. In hope of eternal life, Titus 1-2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. 1 Peter 1-20, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. He was foreknown as the Savior, as the sacrificial Lamb before Adam and Eve were created. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. And then in Revelation 13, 8, all who dwell on earth will worship the, the mark, the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. When was the beforehand? God determined beforehand before the ages were created, before time began, before the earth hung on its invisible string, God chose to save people. We're coming to communion in just a moment. And I want to close with this thought. We must note what cannot be avoided. Predestination is directly linked to the entire process of our salvation. In the future weeks, we will talk about what God, how, what influenced God's choice. I've already illustrated that some. And it was not because you had something to offer Him. It's because He's gracious and merciful. It eliminates all boasting in church growth. Our church is bigger than the church down the street. Well, if that's true, and those people are saved, it's because of what God planned to do, and not because you're a gifted preacher or we got the best music. I ask you to reflect on this this morning. As we come to receive communion, 
Do you understand? John tried to, John did a good job of highlighting this point as well. When we come to this table for this bread and the cup, it is not just a religious ritual that we do. We go home and we live our lives. It is a recognition that God has done for us something we could never do for ourselves. I am that blind, lost, dead sinner who doesn't care about God. And He rescued me. And is rescuing me day to day. And that rescue was decided by God in eons past. What can I do except receive this token with gratitude and rejoicing and humility? I have no room to boast. Look not at me. Look at Christ. Look at Christ. Father, thank You for this morning and these thoughts. And lead us forward in the next weeks, O God. And may we grow through the journey and be able to highlight the hope. The hope that we find in Your unfailing will. Oh God, I, I have not time today, but may I ask you to grant me in the coming weeks to unpack the great expectation. We look at our culture as so fallen, so broken, so against you, Lord. May we be reminded that we do not know your secret will. We do not know all the details of your plan for mankind. But because salvation hinges on your choice, more, more God than our response, it is possible that you have chosen to save millions, hundreds of millions in these last days. May we find strength in that in the midst of our cultural battles. May you humble us, Lord, by the recognition that we have done nothing to merit salvation. We are not better than the person next to us or the person we work with or even people that we may think are cultural enemies, we are not better than them morally. We are saved by grace and grace alone. Grace planned in eternity past, purchased by Christ on the cross, and applied in this day by the power of the Holy Spirit. May our faith be renewed in you day by day. In Christ's name, we'll ask you this morning to...